in Washington, D.C., Barry Woods. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets this morning. There are strong to gale force, south to southeasterly winds, occasional storm force on high ground at first. Uh, the winds will moderate in the afternoon. It's going to be a cloudy with occasional heavy squally showers and thunderstorms. The seas are going to be re- very rough. The maximum temperature is about 28 degrees. Uh, there is... Uh, a strong s- storm signal number eight is in force, as is the amber rainstorm warning, the thunderstorm warning, and the landslip warning. And let me just give you a quick update on the markets. The ASX 200 in Australia up 0.4%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is down uh, 0.1%. The pre-market and the morning session here in Hong Kong has been cancelled. And uh, if it opens in the afternoon, it will depend upon whether the typhoon signal number eight is lifted before midday. I'll be back at 9.30 on the morning brood. Hugh Chivers and Andrew Work are coming up with a back chat in just one moment. 8.31, here's Samantha Butler with the Half Hour News. The observatory has replaced the number nine storm signal with the number eight as Typhoon Higos moves away from Hong Kong. The number nine signal was in effect for over six hours, but Hong Kong appeared to escape major damage. A large signboard came loose and hit the windows of a flat on Hennessy Road in Wan Chai, but no one was hurt. As of 5 a.m., authorities received nine reports of fallen trees and one flood report. Two people were injured and sought treatment at hospital. The Education Bureau says school campuses are closed today. The storm made land- Landfall over Zhuhai around 6.45 this morning. His senior scientific officer, Wu Wang Chung. Local winds are expected to weaken gradually. The winds will be stronger over the western part of Hong Kong at first. Members of the public should stay on the alert. There will be high seas with swells. Members of the public are wise to stay away from the shoreline and not to engage in water sports. Owing to storm surge, some low-lying areas may have flooding or backflow of seawater in the morning. The MTR Corporation is maintaining limited services in 15-minute intervals wherever possible on its underground sections and will gradually resume services on open sections after doing checks. Bus and tram services are suspended. The observatory says the number three signal may be issued between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. A union leader has dismissed a government's suggestion that supermarkets offer discounts in exchange for anti-epidemic subsidies. Carol Ng, the chairwoman of the Confederation of Trade Unions, was commenting after the government announced it was preparing the second round of its Employment Support Scheme, or ESS. Ms Ng criticised the scheme, saying money was handed to employers who in many cases didn't pass it on to workers. She says the government should tighten the scheme by telling employers they can't force staff to take unpaid leave or pay cuts. So many employers after taking the ESS they are not giving to the staff and all these workers throughout Hong Kong facing unpaid leave situations. By giving the discount in the supermarkets you couldn't relieve any situations about unpaid leave, isn't it? Scientists say the Atlantic Ocean could contain up to 200 million tonnes of microplastics, ten times more than previously believed. Many particles are smaller than the diameter of a human hair. Here's the BBC's Victoria Gill. In the decades that our discarded plastic waste has been finding its way into the environment, much of it has broken down into tiny pieces, too small for us to see. So Dr. Katia Paborsova from the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton led an expedition to find all that missing microplastic. On that expedition from the UK to the Falklands, Katia used what's essentially a large ocean-going sieve with a very fine mesh to drag through the top 200 metres of the sea at different locations. 
That revealed that up to 21 million tonnes of microplastic is floating in those upper layers of the ocean. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And welcome to Bank Chat. I'm Hugh Jewett and your co-host today is Andrew Work. Andrew, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. We're talking today more aspects of the COVID situation with an emphasis on how different parts of Asia are faring. We're going to be talking soon to journalists in Korea, the Philippines and later Taiwan. Also, what do you make of the Hong Kong decision to extend the period of limiting restaurants in the evening hours? We're going to be talking to a restaurateur. And of course, we want to hear as ever from you. You can leave a message on our Facebook page. That's Backchat and RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk. We'll do our best to read out your messages or you can give us a call. Uh, and our number is 233-88266. Talk directly to our guests and to Hong Kong. 233-88266 is the number. Uh, just a few emails relating to our discussion yesterday. Magnus uh, has got a longer email. I think we'll, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll uh, space that out and get to it a little bit later. Uh, just in response to yesterday's discussion, uh, Jay, first of all, and by the way, it was Jay who suggested that we talk about uh, Asian uh, issues today. Jay says the government officials need to take a big salary cut because the amount of money we're spending, uh, fool and his money are easily parted. Rick says, we the people are being punished by the government for their failures and utter incompetence. Uh, S says, I think we all need to thank uh, David Webb for his excellent analysis of the handling of the ESS by the government. And uh, Umesh says, from most of my friends in the mainland who used to flock down to Hong Kong for their shopping and holidays, I've been told they won't rush down to Hong Kong when borders open because of the political issues there from the fiasco last year. A lot of them find shopping and entertainment in other Asian countries more enticing than Hong Kong. That's from Umesh. Okay. But, uh, well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but we want to find out first off what's going on in Korea. Alex Jensen, presenter of this morning radio program. Uh, Alex, we got you on the line. Yes, uh, good morning to you. Annyeong Aseo. What's going down in Korea? What's the state there? They were kind of, uh, you know, they kind of were one of the first countries in deep on this, and then they seem to be star performers uh, later on. But what's, what's the case now? Yeah, I think at the moment I would still hold on to the star performer tag, but this is certainly one of the great threats and tests for South Korea of the year in terms of the COVID-19 situation because of uh, really the disobedience of uh, a minority of what you might call extremists, extremists in the political sense and perhaps even in the religious sense who have been deliberately disobeying the government's orders uh, and, and guidelines and um, and the pastor who's been leading that, and I, I say pastor loosely because he's been a very political figure as well, uh, has himself tested positive for uh, COVID-19 now and the, the authorities have been trying to make sure that everybody who took part in a mass gathering of thousands in central Seoul last Saturday uh, is tested. The, the problem is even before that there were clusters of uh, the emergence of COVID-19 for, for months uh, before this uh, the, the main spikes had been cases coming in from abroad that were very easily controllable uh, in quarantine centres. Uh, the idea that people could be floating around the general population, uh, having fallen into a level of complacency, is really what's a worry here. Uh, now, combined with the possibility that thousands gathered together in this um, right-wing conservative gathering, uh, however you want to describe it, 
with a religious connotation last Saturday. But now, now back back it up a little bit for our listeners who might not know the background, because I think at the the beginning of the outbreak, wasn't it a, a as you say, one of, it was a large. Uh, kind of radical Christian conservative group that were insisting that, uh, you know, they should be allowed to gather, no mass required, God would protect them. And that was one of the starting points for the for the for the first bad Korean outbreak. Are you telling me they didn't learn their yeah, lesson? It, They're back. And, and who are these people? Yeah, it, it's interesting because we should, you're right, distinguish between what's happening now and what happened right at the start of South Korea's outbreak when actually Daegu was more or less the, the global epicenter uh, j- just after Wuhan. Uh, and um, it was somewhat uh, uncharted territory uh, at that point. And, and I think uh, South Korea was forced to set up a lot of the global standards in terms of tracking and tracing uh, and the, the testing program because of the fact that uh, until that point, um, no, no so-called Western country had uh, had experienced this. Uh, say Western, of course, loosely there, but South Korea has a strong relationship with with the United States and others uh, in Europe to to work together on this kind of uh, kind of system. So um, I I wonder sometimes how different our own system would have been had, for example, Europe come first. Mm. Um, nonetheless, that was linked to a more of a cult. Uh, yes. Uh, in a sense, with its links to what might be perceived as uh, elements of mainstream religion, but but much more cultish in its behaviour. Yeah. Uh, and and that but that that, that Shincheonji cult, um, I, I, I think to a certain extent also like the, what we're seeing now had encouraged its uh, members to be secretive, and because there was a certain stigma with that cult anyway, there was a there was actually that embedded within the group already. Mm. Um, it was somewhat unfair because also, if you think about it, people are going to restaurants, they're going to coffee shops, cinemas, gyms, uh, you've got widespread delivery services, lots of interaction between people. Uh, why religious gatherings in particular should be singled out is has confused some people. Uh, and because of the secretive nature of that cult uh, that I mentioned in, in the Daegu area, particularly earlier this year, mm. uh, people were spreading all sorts of rumors as to what they were doing together that might have made the virus more easy to spread among them. Right. What we're seeing now um, is, is more of a mainstream Protestant Christian group, but I say mainstream hesitantly because they are now very associated with, some might say tainted by, uh, right-wing conservative politics. And when I say right-wing, uh, of course, that itself requires some clarification. But what they're calling for is the release of imprisoned ex-president Park Geun-hye, who was impeached and ousted before the current president Moon Jae-in uh, ascended. So really, it's tied up with this whole uh, division that the country is experiencing. Uh, politically, mm. and and that breeds uh, mistrust, suspicion, and that's really not what you want when you want everybody to be transparent. Up until this point, the reason why South Korea was, I think, such a star performer was that people were voluntarily coming forward in droves to be tested, and you know, I've, I've had, for example, people tell me, well, you've got to wait, wear a mask. This is the Korean way. It's, like, it's almost like a national pride thing to make sure you're wearing a mask at all times. And I think that's helped a lot in terms sure. of limiting the possibility of infection. Got it. So so people are wearing their masks, but they're generally going about their lives in a normal way now, except for this this group that's kind of mixing up politics and religion. That's uh, quite, a, quite a scene. Uh, do we want to go to Cliff Bale? Just, just um, yeah. um, uh, Alex, so, I mean, what about schools, restaurants? Are they operating normally? I guess the schools are on recess or break over the holidays? Yeah, so 
the, the latest status, just to make this clear, and it, you know, I think it's still relatively tame uh, compared with some of the global situations, um, but, but it's worrying for us here in Korea considering we've got into very low figures. But to see more than 200 cases reported for, for a couple of days recently and, and even just to be in triple digits has, has got people worried and has meant the government's lifted for the Seoul area and, and now um, Incheon as well to level two out of three, this social distancing scheme. What that does is um, for, many, uh, for many establishments, it'll be fairly normal. Um, but some have been forcibly uh, shut down. They are religious gatherings. Um, they are things like the, the PC rooms, uh, nightclubs. But many of the workplaces will, will have either introduced voluntarily social distancing measures or they'll just be carrying on as normal. Level three would severely curtail even workplace uh, gatherings of 10 people or more. And, um, and also, for example, sports, uh, K-League and baseball games have been returning steadily back to closed-door status. Um, schools is a mixed picture. You know, for example, if you go to an international school, they are following education board guidelines, but uh, they also are introducing their own measures, like, for example, having some kids come in on alternate days to limit the number of students on campus at any one time. Um, the public schools are on holiday right now, but what happens when they go back is uh, still an open question. And, uh, and, and I think a, a lot of people are waiting to see what happens this week because um, around in the next hour or so, we should get the figures for the last 24 hours. Uh, if we start seeing figures double, for example, then we'll probably go straight into level three mode. Uh, or if we just have a sustained spike, we'll probably go into level three mode. Okay, just a little uh, update on the on the MTR. A reminder, because the number eight uh, is uh, still up, the number eight southeast gale or storm signal. Uh, but because the number nine has gone down, uh, there have been adjustments to the uh, MTR service. Uh, you'll be pleased to hear this, Andrew. Uh, I'll be happy. I had to I had to walk all the way down the hill. I did get the MTR and then walked all the way up here. So yeah, it's okay. quite, quite a trek. Uh, so uh, basically, there'll be a ten minute frequency on Quintong Line, Chunwan Line, and Island Line. And then the South Island Line, East Rail, West Rail, and Chungkwano Lines will be at 15-minute uh, intervals. 15 minutes on the Tungchung Line uh, as well. And 10 minutes on Chungkwano between North Point and uh, Polam. So 10 or 15 minutes, basically, now as the, uh, the MTR. Uh, yeah, no, no, other, no other blockages noted there, because when, when I came in, you could only get on the red line uh, central to Lai King. Anything past Lai King was out, and I don't know because maybe something fell on the track, but it doesn't. Uh... Okay, no mention of that. Okay, uh, so maybe the they're all back in from business. From the, the latest update that we have from the MTR, yeah. Let's go. Let's go to uh, the, the the Philippines, and we're joined by Cliff Bale, a former colleague, a former journalist who's now based in in the Philippines. Cliff, how, how are you? Okay, yeah, yeah, surviving, surviving. <laughs> Uh, but uh, we've been hearing uh, quite bad news when it comes to the COVID situation in, in, in the Philippines. Can you tell us the latest? Well, the latest figure is 169,000 uh, people infected. Um, now, this is the l largest number in uh, Southeast Asia, and uh, it was quite a blow to the Philippines when, um, when we here overtook Indonesia and um, there was a bit of sort of Trump-like uh, playing around with figures, trying to argue, well, we're not the worst, but uh, uh, it's not looking good. Yesterday, there were 4,800 new cases. Um, 
Most of them are in Metro Manila, uh, the capital, um, almost 3,000. Um, there have been 2,687 deaths, so not looking good. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty bad. And, and what has the government leadership been like on this? You, you kind of slipped in a, a, a Trump analogy there. Duterte seems like the kind of person that might fall into that camp. What, what has the senior levels of government leadership been on this? somewhat erratic. Um, the first cases came out in uh, uh, January when there were three mainland tourists, mainland Chinese tourists who, uh, uh, who, who went down with COVID-19. Um, then the local cases started uh, cropping up. Um, in March, uh, very, a very severe lockdown was imposed, um, something called an enhanced community quarantine. Um, basically, that means that meant that the the whole of Luzon, the main island in the Philippines, was uh, was shut down. Transport stopped, schools stopped, all that sort of thing. Um, then that was relaxed, and um, a couple of weeks ago they reimposed a stricter um, uh, lockdown. Um, so, and which has just actually been relaxed again. So it's going to be interesting to see whether the figures shoot up again. Um, in the initial days, we were talking about, you know, figures of fewer than um, 1,000 cases a day. Now it's not unusual to see 3,000, 4,000, even 5,000 cases a day. Mm. A day. Wow, that's uh, something else. And, and what is the community response to that beyond political leadership? Is everybody wearing their masks? Is everybody staying home like they're supposed to? Or are they, you know, what, what is the percentage of people that are kind of fo- behaving well or following the rules? quite erratic. Um, uh, There have been a number of arrests of people who have not followed the guidelines, not wearing masks. Um, Where I live, I would say that quite a few people around town, this is Tarlac in uh, central Luzon, about uh, three hours north of Manila, a lot of people are wearing masks and also face shields. Um, Mm. This is an interesting development that the government is has now said that um, if you take public transport, which is somewhat limited but still there, you have to wear a face shield. Um, Now, um, that is in my area, which is, um, as I say, sort of relatively relaxed. Metro Manila is uh, is tougher. There are no buses, for example, that go from Tarlac, where I am, down to Metro Manila. There used to be loads of them. There are now none. Uh, you can take buses to neighboring towns, for example, the province to the south, Pampanga, uh, but you can't get a bus all the way down to Manila. So, mm. yes, there have been um, quite considerable effects. And how about the economic impact on people there? I mean, uh, you know, if people are living day to day or, you know, getting paid cash every two weeks or, or on a monthly basis, I mean, uh, I mean, are they, are they able to get by in the Philippines or they kind of feel like they have to they have to go go to work regardless of the health situation? have lost their jobs. Um, I mean, the second quarter GDP uh, figure was minus 16.5%, which is a huge Mm. drop. Um, uh, A lot of people have lost their jobs. Uh, Unemployment has risen. Um, Now, for example, we here, we run, uh, my my wife has a couple of uh, units that we rent out to people uh, where we're living, and uh, we're not getting, we're not getting the rent because people are not working. So, having quite a considerable impact. Uh, how about government support this, for people? Of course, um, the government has been giving out support, giving
to uh, uh, to um, uh, has been giving out money to uh, to poor people. Um, this again, the, the there's been criticism of of the way that the money has been handed out. That some people have got it and some people haven't got it. Um, uh, this, as I say, is um, uh, primarily for for poor people, and there are a lot of poor people in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Alex Jensen, what's the economic uh, situation in, in, in Korea? What, uh, have they measured the effect on GDP yet, and what sort of government measures are, are appearing? Um, you know, I just want to say quickly, interestingly, listening to the situation in the Philippines uh, really highlights what I was saying before about how you know cautious we are being here in Korea by comparison and, and how the... Uh, index of worry is rising, even um, entering triple figures when, when, I, when I'm sure many countries would like to be uh, seeing the limited number of infections that we're seeing here. But, but where the government is very worried is, well, what happens if we start seeing the exponential growth from here, particularly as uh, people who've been involved in, in Seoul uh, are, are moving throughout the country. Um, and, and, and so one of the first things the government's done is ask people to avoid travelling to uh, other parts of the country if they are based in Seoul for a couple of weeks. Um, in terms of uh, support for people, it's been fairly consistent uh, for, for months now. Uh, they've offered financial support for people if they uh, are infected. Uh, they've given them treatment. Uh, if you have the test and you have a reason to be tested but you still prove negative, that test will be heavily subsidised, uh, as I myself experienced. Um, it was... Uh, I suppose U.S. dollars is maybe a good comparison, maybe about 20 U.S. dollars um, for my test, which had I been tested without any possible justification, it, it may have been uh, up to 10 times that. Um, but, mm-hmm. but it was uh, because I live in the area of Seoul where there had been a spike. Um, and, and frankly, right now, given the number of cases emerging in Seoul, it wouldn't be hard to justify having the test. Um, one thing that has changed is the government is not offering free treatment to all foreigners. Uh, before that was the case because they're trying to encourage everybody to come forward. But now people who come into the country, uh, they won't automatically be offered treatment. But if you are a foreign citizen and you're already based here in Korea, uh, you, you are still being treated like a local effectively. So that, that I think has helped a lot of people feel free to come forward. And a lot of the stigma that existed early on when, when people were getting a lot of attention on them when they were tested, especially if you're a foreigner, let's say, and you know, you're the one French person or the one British person in your particular neighborhood, uh, when they say, you know, this British person was tested uh, for COVID-19 and, and tested positive, and they moved from you know, this place to that place in this particular neighborhood, it wasn't hard for people to work out who you were. I think that was a bit off-putting for some people. But now uh, they've done a lot to help protect people uh, with, with their identity and so on. So, so I think it's improved over time. And when you and say... measures have been generally sound. Alex, when you say off-putting, that makes it sound like you're maybe uh, deploying some of the uh, famous uh, British understatement. Uh, how, how, how is that off-putting manifesting itself? Would people key your cars or approach you or say something? Or Well, sorry, could I just ask you to repeat that for a second? Yeah, I mean, I mean, when you say it was off-putting, I mean, 
you say people are figuring out that you're the one, you're the foreigner with the COVID, and it's right. a little off-putting. But how do you know that? Are people ta- are people coming up and saying something? Are they keying your car? Are they putting a red paint on your door? I mean, how, how does it oh, manifest? Oh, I see, I see. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it's just that latter part. I mean, well, no. Um, you know, I've lived in Korea as a journalist predominantly uh, since 2010, and over that time, you know, you see manifestations occasionally of xenophobia, but it's never that obvious, like having your car keyed or, or anything of that nature. Okay. It would just be a, it would just be a look or a refusal to let you into establishment would probably be the most extreme thing, or perhaps a comment. Oh, wow. um, as I had not experienced it personally, I can't, I can't say, but I, but I just know that. Others who did test positive, which would probably stay at home for fear of being, um, you know, ostracized. And frankly, they were being instructed to stay at home anyway because they had to see out their quarantine period. Yeah, and we assume Korea is a pretty uh, rich, uh, wealthy country. What sort of uh, effect is the uh, is the COVID outbreak having on the economy? There's definitely an impact there, but actually a lot of the reports recently have suggested that we are considered, continuing to see actual growth. I mean, I think anything hmm. uh, in the black, as it were, is, is a good thing in terms of GDP expectations, uh, even given the limitations of GDP as a, as a measure of growth uh, on its own. Uh, the fact that uh, some other major economies are either already or are in fear of recession means that... Um, even the below 1% range, but above 0% growth is, is considered uh, a good thing for now. Um, and South Korea is in that territory. So I think um, the fear would be if we were to have prolonged level three status, what I've mentioned before, if anyone's just joining, you know, that would mean effectively shutting down a lot of businesses or having people work at home. Whilst for many offices, they've set up uh, the kind of teleworking conditions that actually make that still pretty productive for the retailers and offline shops where people are relying on customers coming in, that's where you see the most damage. So, of course, you know, that that single GDP figure doesn't uh, tell the full picture for certain sectors. But overall, uh, actually, it's, by comparison, I think everything pretty positive here. Okay. Um We've got, of course, a typhoon. Just to add to the, to add to everything else, uh, just an update on the uh, transport uh, situation. Uh, speed limits on the bridges uh, reduced to uh, 50k. That's the Lantau Link and Tinkau and, and and so on. Uh, for the MTR, yeah, operating at uh, 15 or 10 minute uh, intervals, but all the buses are uh, not running. Uh, New World First Bus, City Bus, KMB. Uh, and New Lantau, all routes are suspended uh, there. Uh, and uh, the shuttle bus for the Hong Kong, Zhuhai, Macau Bridge, that's suspended, as is the trams and the peak tram. That's the latest. So that's the information that was given out at uh, 8.30 uh, this morning. All right, sounds good. Uh, Cliff Bale, just want to check back in. Uh, so in the Philippines, I mean, uh, you know, the, the Philippines, people are famously social over there. What kind of an impact is this having on people's uh, mental health? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's tough on everybody everywhere, but how about in the Philippines? Um, well, restaurants are now open, um, uh, although, you know, with uh, social distancing, um, you know, during the, uh, during the hard lockdown, they were all closed. You could only ta- get takeaway food. Um, uh, so things are returning to normal. Um, I, haven't no- I haven't noted uh, any sort of, you know, mental health issues, uh, although, you know, you must uh, 
obviously uh, there is the economic impact and that uh, that can affect uh, people's mental health um, uh, but uh, things are gradually getting back to normal but um, one never knows whether you know one never knows how long this is going to last or whether there's going to be a return to a hard lockdown um, and that is worrying yeah. What about the political uh, impact? Uh, do people think that Duterte has performed well? Uh, mixed views mm. on that. Um, interestingly, they've... Um there's been a lot of criticism of the health secretary, who's uh, uh, Francisco Duque, who uh, who uh, is in charge of uh, putting everything together um, against COVID-19. Uh, uh, he's been urged to resign over failure of leadership and... Um, uh, uh, there have been allegations of irregularities in um, in um, what the Department of Health has been doing um, uh, over things like delayed procurement of protective equipment and uh, confusing reporting of uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, data. Um, so uh, there's been quite a lot of criticism, although uh, President Duterte is sticking solidly behind the Health Secretary, and uh, uh, so it looks like he will probably survive. Okay, well, Cliff Bear, many thanks for joining us. Uh, former uh, RTHK journalist, head of our newsroom, now based in the, in the Philippines. Many thanks, Cliff. And thanks to Alex, Alex Jensen, presenter of This Morning, radio programme by TBS um, in South Korea. We'll be checking out uh, Ross Feingold in Taiwan after the uh, news at nine and also talking to a restaurant owner, to uh, JR uh, from uh, Grappa's, uh, and how he sees the extension of restrictions. The uh, weather, strong to gale force, south to south easterly winds, occasionally storm force on high ground at first. Winds will moderate this afternoon. Cloudy with occasional heavy squalls and thunderstorms. Seas will be very rough with squells. To, uh, swells. Temperatures up to about 28 degrees. The outlook occasional showers tomorrow, easing off later. Sunny periods in the following couple of days. So there's a number eight southeast gale or storm signal is now in effect. There is also an amber rainstorm warning. Amber rainstorm warning in effect. A thunderstorm warning until uh, at least 12.30 today. And also a landslip warning. And the latest readings, 26 Celsius and a relative humidity now of 92%. And why Donald Trump and Democrats say it's not. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Backchat on a Wednesday morning with Andrew Work and me, Hugh Chiverton. Uh, we're talking about aspects of uh, COVID-19 looking uh, around the region. We were talking to correspondents in uh, South Korea and in the Philippines before the news at nine. We're going to turn to Taiwan uh, in a moment. Also, we're going to talk about the, the, the latest situation with the decision by the administration to uh, extend the uh, restrictions on uh, restaurants. Uh, who are only allowed to uh, serve food at uh, lunchtimes. Uh, you can do takeaways in, in the evenings. That's going to be uh, uh, extended, although there was a lot of speculation that they would change their minds uh, on that. We're going to be talking to a restaurateur. I guess what he's going to say. Uh, after uh, after about 9.15 or so, um, if you've got any questions or comments uh, on aspects of uh, what's happening around Asia uh, or locally, please share them by calling us on 233-88266 by emailing backchat at rthk.hk 
or by commenting on our Facebook page. You can share your thoughts there. That's uh, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Okay, here's an email from uh, Magnus. Uh, this is uh, in relation to yesterday's uh, programme where we were talking about uh, government measures and how the government can uh, support industry or how the government should be spending uh, its money. Magnus says, uh, great to hear from David Webb again. I hope he's doing well. One issue that David mentioned was the question of what our goal is in dealing with COVID, getting to zero or merely containing things at a level that doesn't overwhelm our health system. Here in Hong Kong, it makes much more sense to target zero. We can easily achieve it. And the benefits of being in a state of zero or close to zero are very significant. Those countries, with a few exceptions perhaps, such as Sweden, that aim merely to get by without their systems collapsing are not doing so as a result of choice. They've been forced into it as they feel unable to realistically target zero for whatever reason. Insufficient control or money or infrastructure, lack of public buy-in, etc. It's the least bad solution. Sadly, that position is now the default for most of the world. In Hong Kong, we're fortunate to not ha to have to go down that highly unsatisfactory path. Plainly, we have the ability to get to zero or close to zero and maintain that over time. That can be seen just by looking at the period prior to the latest outbreak. So why are we going through this latest outbreak then? Was it inevitable? Will there be another one just around the corner? No, a pattern of cyclical outbreaks that reach a problematic level is uh, inevitable here in Hong Kong. We needn't be stuck in an endless loop. Uh, uh, we are currently suffering through an outbreak simply due to very basic errors in policy, namely reckless quarantine exemptions and loose enforcement of quarantines generally, a lack of properly resourced ongoing and widespread community testing and an understaffed contact tracing unit. Uh, 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 our testing is insufficient and turnaround times too long. Taking one week to protest tests renders them next to useless. Uh, as necessary and damaging as the quarantine blunders were, had we properly resourced testing and contact tracing in place, we would have nipped the outbreak in the bud. Due to the great starting point we have in Hong Kong, and with a huge advantage of having such a conscientious public, we were within touching distance of being able to go about our lives on an ongoing basis, largely as normal. All that's needed is for the government to finally get their act together, plug the quarantine loopholes and put popular resources into our test and trace units. Those thoughts are from Magnus. Uh, and uh, John in Sai Kung says uh, on uh, supermarket buddies, after giving countless millions to the major supermarkets who didn't need it, the government is going to give more money to their buddies. Why is the ICAC not investigating? And CW on a different topic says last Sunday, the 75th anniversary of victory over Japan was remembered at Statue Square. The US Consul, UK Consul, Canadian Consul, Royal Hong Kong Volunteers and the Royal British Legion all laid wreaths to remember this awful period in Hong Kong's history and for all those who gave their lives for Hong Kong in the Second World War. Without their actions, we would not be here today. It was more disappointing to see that the Hong Kong government at the last minute decided not to send a representative to lay a wreath. The Hong Kong government also did not provide any reason why. If we don't remember history, it will come back and repeat itself. First, all first, Hong Kong first. students should be educated on this period. Sorry, I was just going to say, first, yeah. time, first time they've ever missed it. Oh. Not, not come to that ceremony. Mm. And nobody knows why. No. Okay, interesting. No. Okay, Ross, so those are those yeah. are emails. And uh, we're checking in now with Ross Feingold uh, from uh, SafePro Group. And uh, hi, Ross. Uh, Taiwan, what is the scene there? Uh, you know, we've been hearing that uh, Taiwan's been doing very well. Uh, that We used to be compared to Hong Kong until Hong Kong went off, uh, I wouldn't say off the rails, but Hong Kong had a, a resurgence. What's, what's the scene in Taiwan now? 
Well, it's still good news. You have a relatively small number of cases and thankfully a relatively small number of deaths. And it's gotten a lot of global media attention for this success. And people often ask why. Well, you know, why was Taiwan so successful? And probably for more than any other reason, it was just a, a rapid decision in, in those crucial weeks in, in January, right around Lunar New Year at the, at the end of January. So basically, you know, put the island into a bubble, and, and very quickly it became difficult for people uh, from China to enter Taiwan, and then it became difficult for people from other parts of the world to enter Taiwan, and then, uh, frankly, it became all but impossible for people from anywhere to enter Taiwan. And Taiwan was relatively sealed off, uh, other than, of course, for returning nationals. And like any other uh, location around the world, returning citizens do unfortunately bring cases. Uh, but the, the, the number has been extremely small. And uh, Taiwan does have a national health care system, which allows the authorities to have uh, uh, excellent information about individuals. It facilitates contact tracing. It facilitates uh, rapidly giving people medical care as well. Okay. And, and what is the daily life like there right now? Well, uh, you know, this may come as a surprise to people, but uh, the, throughout this year, it's been all but business as usual. Um, if you go turn back the clock to, again to that crucial period, for example, in, in February, Schools were, were delayed opening for a few weeks, uh, but once schools opened, it was in-person classes. And I'm talking about um, uh, high school tertiary institutions. Uh, they, they advised to have safe distancing in the classroom. They had temperature checks at, at the entrance to schools. They restricted entry only to students and staff. Uh, a lot of Places had temperature checks, office buildings had temperature checks. Uh, sometimes they ask you to sign in and provide information uh, for contact tracing purposes, but that, that's not universal here because it wasn't really deemed necessary. It's more like an extra step if, if a building, a property management company or, or some other institution wants to maintain that information. And by June, a lot of those uh, restrictions uh, well, fell away. They, they were decided, it was decided they weren't necessary anymore because there just wasn't that number, number of cases in Taiwan to, to make those kinds of requirements needed. So temperature checks at a lot of schools or other types of institutions fell away. Contact tracing forms, uh, you know, people weren't collecting those anymore either. Uh, one interesting thing is on, on the uh, what we call the MRT, so the MTR here in, here in Taipei. Uh, it was very late until you had to wear a mask. You know, sometime in March, you suddenly had to wear a mask. And then in early June, they said, you don't need to wear a mask as long as you could safe, safe distance from other uh, travelers in the system. So if you're in an empty car, you don't even need to wear a mask. But a couple of weeks ago, they reimposed the mask requirement. So once again, once you pass the gantry, you do have to wear a mask all the time inside the MTR here. And uh, restaurants, nightclubs, cinemas, all open for business? Business as usual. Wow, that's uh, something else. Of course, there's no new, no new movies to go see. <laughs> Maybe some Taiwanese movies. And, and I mean, I guess, you know, the, the kind of the extra bit with Taiwan that's always on the radar is, of course, is, is where this puts Taiwan on the international scene. A lot of people are calling for Taiwan, uh, re renewing their calls for Taiwan to be admitted back into the World Health Organization so they can share more about how they've been successful. 
Well, that, that, that didn't work this year, so there was a lot of talk about that in April and May in the, in the run-up to the World Health Assembly meeting. Uh, and it's happened in past years, unfortunately, for Taiwan, is you, you get uh, foreign ministry or government spokespeople around the world from different countries saying, yes, Taiwan should, you know, we support Taiwan's, uh, you know, being an observer, not being excluded. And you get that from, from European countries, Japan, Australia, United States. Uh, but when the meeting was actually held, of course, China used its influence uh, to block that. And it's not like any other country, except maybe the United States, but for other reasons, walked out of the World Health Assembly over the Taiwan issue. I mean, it certainly would be nice if some of these like-minded countries actually did that, but instead they're, they're still big supporters of the WHO as a platform to work on global health issues. One other interesting aspect, though, about you know, Taiwan's success is because they were so successful really from the get-go, from January, you, know, you have countries that dealt with a lot of cases, uh, partial or full lockdown, and then they struggle with is now the time to emerge from that and how do we do it, well, how many phases and stages and milestones. Unfortunately, Taiwan's a victim of its success because they didn't have a lockdown here. So they don't really have experience to share with other countries about how to emerge from a lockdown. Sure. I mean, that's a good problem to have. But, but for, for countries that, that you know, or states in the United States, for example, that, that are saying, okay, how do we move from a partial or a full lockdown to phased opening, opening schools, the, the, the examples in those situations are probably you know, in Europe and some other places around the world, but not necessarily Taiwan. Was it the speed with which they, they introduced those restrictions on travel that you think was the key here? Because other places, you know, have, like in Hong Kong, we've, you know, we've been moderately successful in, in that, in, in a, you know, limiting who can come here and making them have quarantine and everything like that. But it was, it was, it was because the, the Taiwan did it right from the get-go that makes a difference, you think? Yeah, I think the speed was a crucial factor. So that first week in January when reports started to emerge uh, uh, about uh, you know, some strange flu coming out of Wuhan and airports around the region started to implement uh, temperature checks or even started to immediately ban travelers coming from uh, Wuhan uh, or Hubei. You know, Taiwan was one of those uh, places that did that right away. And then, as I said, it followed very quickly over the next few weeks with ever stricter uh, uh, travel or entry restrictions. Uh, so by, by the end of January, beginning February, it was already very difficult for people to enter Taiwan unless they were nationals. Hmm. And given that the domestic economy, uh, it sounds like it hasn't been, you know, experienced widespread shutdowns, where is the Taiwanese economy being hit? Or is it? I mean, I, I would expect that exports are, are taking a bit of a, a slam here. But, you know, well, where, Taiwan's economy is very sensitive to, to the global economic situation because it's so dependent on exports. You have to balance that against uh, something that, that's pretty interesting. It's an important part of Taiwan's economy is Taiwan's role in the information technology industry, which I'm sure our, your listeners are aware of. Uh, and people have been working from home. They've been buying more gear. Uh, that's great for Taiwan, at least at least for the technology companies. Uh, traditional industry companies, manufacturing, they're going to suffer a bit. Uh, sometimes they manufacture here, or sometimes it's Taiwanese-owned factories that are in China, and, and they had shutdowns in, in the first few months of this year. So uh, not all Taiwan companies are having a great year, of course, just like anywhere else around the world. But the tech sector... 
you know, they, they, they have some bright spots, and, and you know, we see the headlines about the stock prices of, of some of the more famous uh, technology companies. But the people who provide the hardware and, and the other gear, you know, the, a lot of that's Taiwan companies or the semiconductor chips, and they're benefiting from that. And, and it, because we didn't have the lockdown here, you know, those factories have been able to churn out their equipment. Research and development has been able to continue uh, normally here in Taiwan. So to the extent that people are buying new equipment, people can be buying 5G phones, need a new computer for working from home, Taiwan certainly benefits from that. Do we have the GDP figures for the first quarter? Well, it, it, it's off. I mean, it's, it's just like the rest of the world. I mean, we're looking yeah. at low, you know, below 2%, if that. Uh, and that's that's unfortunate because Taiwan was was – expected to do relatively well this year versus other countries in the region that might have been more sensitive to China or, or various other factors. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Taiwan, it's going to be slow this year, no, no doubt, uh, but at least there's still some bright spots. Ross, do you think it's part of uh, Taiwan's uh, ability, you know, kind of the, their, their move to shut down so quickly, was there any sense of it being uh, that Taiwan need, needed to keep on its uh, war footing, as it were? I mean, especially in the, the earlier part of this, I think around March, April, there was some concern about various militaries around the world uh, being impacted by COVID. And, uh, but, I mean, in Taiwan, are they, are they hypersensitive to this, given China's recent belligerence? It's it's a great question, and and it also is a good reminder that all these events occurred simultaneous to the Taiwan election in January. Uh, so at the time of the election, you know, people didn't we didn't really know how the, the, the severity of the virus. Uh, so we weren't in, in in the full travel restriction mode yet, either in Taiwan or around the region. But pretty rapidly after the election, that's, that was the situation. And, uh, of course, the government was reelected here with a very large margin. So there was a feeling of cohesiveness, uh, unity uh, among the population broadly. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the, the military did have one serious outbreak. They, they, I would say rather stupidly, they sent a friendship flotilla to one of the countries in, in the Pacific that they have diplomatic relations with, Palau, in March. And the, the flotilla came back, and, and there was an outbreak among the sailors of, of, of the virus. And, and they, you know, everyone was pointing fingers. Did they get it while they were uh, visiting their, their friend, or did they get it, or did they have it before they boarded the ship? And, and the, the uh, officers and the medical staff just missed it. Uh, but the military exercises that Taiwan usually holds in, in the springtime, those were delayed. Uh, so that, that's a bad outcome, even though they, they recently had them in July into early August. Uh, and China, you know, very interesting for, for the severity of the outbreak that occurred in China. One thing that continued apace throughout this year was their military exercises, not just directed at Taiwan, but, uh, you know, in, in, in points further north with regard to the Diao ties in South China Sea. Uh, so China, whatever the cost was in, in, in terms of uh, illness or, or money, I mean, they, they made that strategic decision to continue uh, their military movements and to show that to not just Taiwan, but the region and, and of course, the United States. 
and Taiwan's got to keep up with that. Uh, that's definitely a struggle because uh, you know, there, there's no limit to the n- amount of money Taiwan needs to spend to prepare for self-defense. Yeah, especially with the outbreak in the American uh, battle group. Uh, thank you very much, Ross Feingold. Stay safe, stay pro, and uh, we appreciate having your views on RTHK3. Thank you very much. That's uh, Ross Feingold, Director of Business Development at Safe Pro Group, a consultancy that advises corporate clients about travel safety and risk mitigation uh, around the world. Uh, an email from uh, Gobex who says it's great. It was great to hear David Webb back on the air yesterday. It's guests like him who bring such erudite analysis that makes your show such essential listening during these difficult times. It's so disappointing that representatives from the government or the police are so reluctant to appear. Ultimately, it's their duty to be available to the media. That comes uh, from Gobex. Thanks very much in, indeed for that. Uh, finally, uh, today, let's go back to uh, Hong Kong. There was a lot of speculation that the government... Uh, would lift the uh, restrictions, the ban on eating in restaurants uh, at night, along with uh, other social distancing rules, where they've decided to extend those until next Tuesday. 14 types of premises will also uh, remain closed. We've spoken in the past to uh, to uh, James Robertson, uh, JR. He's back on the line now, owner of the restaurant train Grappers and uh, Cadillac. Uh, Mr. Robertson, JR, good morning to you, and thanks for, for joining us. I guess you'll be fairly disappointed by the decision. Yeah, good morning, Andrew, and you. Uh, yes, yeah. very disappointed. Uh, the social distancing is just, it's really tough. And now we can only have two people at a table, and then you can only use 50% of the uh, seating capacity. Not everybody comes in twos, so it kind of eliminates families and, and others. It's, it's quite tough. Uh, I just make a side note that there's a company called NBC in the U.S. They operate 1,200 uh, Pizza Hut franchises. They just closed 300, wow. and all of them have dining rooms. And the issue is, is despite the takeaway and the delivery uh, aspect of things like pizza, it doesn't support the, the full dining space. So at the end of the day, a lot of people are going to not reopen. This, this is definitely a, a, debt, a financial crunch for all of us in the industry here in Hong Kong, and I, I think that's across the board. And uh, some of the social distancing, I mean, like, well, now we have to wear masks. You can go into the restaurant, and, and you have to wear your mask, and you have to sit there with your mask on until, as I am advised, and as the police and a PhD have warned our, our restaurant staff and a few of the patrons, uh, until such time as your food or beverage is actually served, you have to leave the mask on. I mean, nobody really thinks these things through. I mean, here we are, we've got... Uh, you're going to sit there. I'm going to meet uh, Andrew or Hugh for, for lunch. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a couple of beers and a hamburger. We're going to be there for, say, 90 minutes. So I have to sit there for three minutes with my mask on. And then once my, my beer comes or my hamburger comes or whatever, I can take my mask off. And I'm going to sit in the exact same spot for 87 more minutes and talk to the, the waiters and, and talk to my uh, the people across the table or whatever. So for three minutes out of 90 minutes, I have to wear the mask. I'm not quite sure what protection that adds to the staff or the people I'm dining, the person I'm dining with or whatever. So I don't think there's been a lot of thought process that's gone through all of these these rules that have been put out there. But, yes, there was a rumor on the street early Monday morning that they were going to lift it to 9 o'clock or something. There still remain only two people. But if the hours go back to 9 o'clock, I think there'd be a lot more... uh, a lot more sales. If you look at New Zealand, they had 100 days with no cases, and now all of a sudden they've got some cases that have popped up again. Mm-hmm. I don't think any country 
country anywhere can say there's zero cases. And, and I'm not sure what the objective is for Hong Kong. We just got to get on with our lives <laughs> and, and and try to be as cautious as possible. And uh, and health wise and mask wise and uh, sanitation wise and sterilizer wise, yes, we're doing all of those things. But they still won't let us open the. Our business the way it should be open, so we're kind of unhappy from, from this sector. Yeah, I could believe it. Hey, Jr., have you seen people change their dining behaviors? Are people like you know going for earlier lunches or taking even early dinners or meet, you know meeting people for drinks at four o'clock in the afternoon as, as like quote unquote business meetings? Um, has there been any kind of a, a shift like that? You know, given that people know they kind of have to wrap it up at six o'clock. Well, one of the other things that's hurting us a bit as well is a lot of people are working from home. And my restaurants or our restaurants are largely in uh, business or business districts. And so the people don't come to the district to work in their office. They obviously don't come for lunch. But on the other hand, the second part of your question is, is spot on. Uh, I had some meetings in one of my plate in grappas yesterday with uh, the people. And we were sitting there. And at about 4 o'clock, people start coming in the door. 5 o'clock, we probably had about... 25 people sitting around drinking wine, uh, having a pizza, whatever. And then at about 6.01, everybody has to pack up and go. But, uh, yeah, there, there's definitely an increase in that uh, 4.30 to 6 o'clock business. And not enough to sustain the business, but it's certainly better than nothing. Do you think uh, a lot of businesses are going to go out of business? Do you think this is going to lead to a lot of closures? That's what uh, Alan Zeman was talking about. Oh, I'm quite confident there's going to be a lot uh, shuttered before the, by the end of the year. Uh, there has been some subsidy, yes, and I think without that subsidy, we had all already had, had to close, close some. Of course, I, we have four pubs, and the four pubs are all closed by mandate since July 15. So um, that's kind of a, a tough bill to swallow as well, particularly when some landlords are unwilling to uh, reduce the rent, which is dismaying. So when we continue those discussions, and of course we're not paying the rent at the moment, so we'll see where that goes. But um, yeah, I think that there's going to be a fallout in the industry throughout, and I think that it's not going to it's going to come back the way it once was. I think uh, you know hotels and buffet and, and and things like that in the past, people go Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon for a big buffet. I think the buffet business won't come back for about five or six years. Yeah, and. Uh, I just think that a lot of things have changed. People are going to be more cautious on where they go and how they eat. And I mean, for me personally, I, I'm happy to go out and sit in the restaurant. Of course, I'm dining mostly in my own restaurants, but mm -hmm. I'm happy to go out and I'm happy to see other people there. But I think a lot of people will change change their lifestyle. And there's also, of course, there's been a bit of, I don't want to say a brain drain, but clearly there's people that I know that have left Hong Kong and, and since January 1. And don't plan to come back. So I think uh, and a lot of those are the people that have the option to go live in another Western country. So a lot of the Western restaurants are going to be struggling uh, big time, in my view. Do you think also that if those, if those restaurants do go out of business, that there will be new people who will be there to step in and, and uh, you know, use those premises, maybe to take over those businesses, that there's just going to be a kind of a generational change in, in the restaurant businesses. There might be in other industries as well, perhaps. What do you think? Well, historically, that has always been the case. Over, I've been in Hong Kong for more than 40 years, and I, I've seen that historically. There's always, I don't want to use the, the greater fool theory, but one, one 
the shop or a restaurant, and they close down, and, and not very much later, somebody else is having another go. Change it to a dress shop, to a watch uh, watch shop, or, or from uh, Chinese food to uh, hamburgers, whatever. Um, that definitely happens. But I, I think that now we, we are in a much more critical situation. I mean, this, people don't have money. Uh, this is the longest queues I've ever seen of empty taxis, a phenomenon that's never existed, in, mm. not for very long. In my 40 years, 6,000 taxis are parked in the new territory. It's not operating. Um, a lot of the buses are empty. It, it, it just it's, People aren't spending money. I mean, the, the shops don't have sales. You read about all the luxury brands, and a lot of, a lot of them are leaving. I just don't think there's, there's money. I mean, they, yeah, they got the $10,000 check, but that was one time. And uh, that's that's long gone. Yeah. We didn't get, get to the elections yet. That was already spent. Yeah, and, so and I, I really believe there's a change, uh, a market change here. Yeah, and, and I think especially on the West, probably more in the Western uh, restaurant sector, the, the investors are going to be a little bit more hesitant. A lot, a lot of them were pilots, actually, and we know they're getting hit as well. But, I mean, Jared, from your, from your colleagues in the restaurant business, I mean, uh, do you see investors, uh, kind, of the, the am- you know, kind of the amateur punters who have been so vital to funding new restaurants, do you see them stepping up over the next couple no, of years? I, I agree with the, what you're inferring. Um, and a lot of the banks, investment banks, everybody, they, what they said, the HSBC has cut their bonus for the last year by 600 million U.S. dollars. You know, a lot of these punters that have been around, they got lots of money in their pocket. And Hong Kong's been flying like that. And there's lots of people that have been willing to invest. But I think all the big companies are cutting back on their bonuses and their salaries. And uh, I don't think anybody's out there with a loose cannon full of money to just... Uh, Go and invest in it here and there and everywhere. I, I, really, I really think that market is dead. Yeah. So I mean, it's going to be tough to fertilize those green shoots. Uh, you know when this. You know when this passes. Okay. Well, Jay. Uh, well, I just don't think there's going to be that many new Western restaurants coming in. Uh, it, it, it's just going to be tough sledding. I think. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Jar. Many thanks for joining us, James Robinson, the uh, owner of uh, Grappers and uh, Cadillac. Uh, that chain, thank you very much indeed. Andrew, many thanks to you for making your way through a number nine. Yeah, and it looks like... get in, a little, dedication. No taxis, no buses, so a little, little bit of hiking. I got my exercise in today, and I'll, I'll hoof it back to the MTR station. Glad it's running. And you can swim across the harbour as well. While you're <laughs> yes, uh, many thanks to you, and thanks to, uh, to uh, Janice, uh, Janice Wong, and uh, all our uh, staff who made it through uh, to uh, bring you the programme today. Uh, thank you very much.